pages of our Bibles are filled with stories of the reversal of fortunes, and Exodus begins with two such stories. From the book of Genesis, we know that Jacob, now called Israel, came to settle in Egypt with his sons and their families because a famine had threatened the survival of their large clan. Those on the brink of disaster are now, at the start of the book of Exodus, fruitful and prolific, it says, so much so that the land was filled with them. So there's the first reversal. Those on the edge of demise are now hale and hearty. The second reversal shows up just as quickly. A new king who knew nothing of Joseph and therefore cared nothing for his people came to power, determined to limit the growth and influence of the people descended from Israel and his sons. Oppressing their numbers into slavery was the Pharaoh's weapon of choice. This double reversal sets the stage for what became the pivotal event in salvation history, the story of oppression, divine intervention, freedom, and covenant that we find in Exodus. Some would say that Exodus is the one event that has more to do with how we understand faith than any other. It introduces a personal God who reaches into history to save Israel and who will always redeem us in the historical setting in which we find ourselves. It introduces the covenant in an explicit way, setting up a mutual relationship between God and the people, a theme that will recur throughout all of Scripture. Exodus also introduces our identity as God's people, formed in the desert and reformed in periods of exile. And finally, the Exodus event gives meaning to the eternal struggle between forces of good and evil, God versus Pharaoh, life versus death. And even the New Testament makes sense only in light of Exodus and is directly referenced multiple times. Jesus' own life is a journey from death to life, inviting us to move from slavery to freedom. In these first three chapters of Exodus, I'd like to focus with you on several important lessons that I hope we can take into our study of the rest of the chapters as they unfold. One lesson has to do with the role of seemingly minor characters in the early life of Moses. A second lesson has to do with God's identity as revealed to Moses and Israel. And a third lesson will focus on being called and commissioned. Now, we all know that Moses is the star of the show throughout Exodus. He speaks for God. He stands up to Pharaoh. He ascends the mountain to receive God's commands. He leads the people in the desert. There is no question that he is on center stage with God. However, sometimes we miss the characters who are instrumental in bringing Moses to the point of that divine encounter. And it makes me wonder if in our own lives we might miss those who do the same for us. So let's look at these seemingly minor characters, all of whom happen to be women in the infancy story of Moses. The first people we encounter are the Hebrew midwives, Shifra and Puah. They are given a clear order to kill male children of the Hebrew slaves. You know, apparently, as much as Egypt's leaders valued slave labor, they placed a higher value on ridding their society of any group who could possibly threaten imperial power. The midwives knew the imperial orders and no doubt had reason to fear Pharaoh's wrath if they disobeyed. But the text tells us that the midwives, however, feared God and allowed the male children to live. Now, no doubt we're seeing here two different kinds of fear. Fear of Pharaoh is really fright or terror in the face of impending punishment, while the fear of God is more properly being in awe of God, who is all-powerful and all-loving. The midwives followed a higher authority and cleverly explained the survival of male children, too. 
No doubt Pharaoh knew little about birthing babies. The women could play on his ignorance and attribute the birth survival rate to the robust nature of Hebrew women who delivered their children before the midwives could be there. Now the next supporting character we meet is the mother of Moses, later identified in chapter 6 by the name Jochebed. While we really know very little about this woman, we do know that she did what most mothers would do. She protected her endangered child and was even willing to give him up if it meant his survival. We know from the story that she actually became his nursemaid when Pharaoh's daughter took baby Moses into her home. And I think we can imagine that in her care for him, she provided him with more than physical nourishment. Surely, while helping to raise Moses, she told him stories about their ancestors and sang to him songs of their people. And then Pharaoh's daughter is mentioned only here in all of Scripture. She is one of the ruling class and, and an outsider, really, and yet she becomes a figure of redemption in the Exodus story. In many ways, Pharaoh's daughter prefigures how God will rescue the people of Israel. When she discovers the papyrus basket floating in the river, we are told that she was moved with pity. Now that's a phrase that's used elsewhere in Scripture when speaking of divine response and intervention. So, for example, Isaiah the prophet spoke of God's pity as he reminded Israel it was not an envoy or a messenger, but his presence that saved them. Because of his love and pity, the Lord redeemed them, lifting them up and carrying them all the days of old. And then, of course, Jesus is moved with pity on several occasions, as in Mark chapter 1, verse 41, when being moved with pity, Jesus stretched out his hand and cleansed the leper. In Luke's account of the Good Samaritan, we learn that it was his compassion for the injured traveler that moved the Samaritan to act on his behalf. So Pharaoh's daughter is moved with pity. She's stirred with the same compassion that marks our experience of God. And she draws the baby Moses up out of the water in a scene that prefigures how God will rescue the Israelites from the waters of the Red Sea. She then takes Moses into her own home, adopting him as God has adopted us and made us his own. So for someone whose name we never learn, Pharaoh's daughter's brief role on the stage is certainly significant. And we can't move away from these characters around Moses until we talk a bit about his older sister Miriam. Even as a young girl, we see glimpses of the kind of character she will exhibit later. She is watchful and she is bold. Having kept an eye on her brother's basket floating in the reeds, she sees the opportunity to intervene on behalf of the rest of her family when Pharaoh's daughter finds Moses. So this is a young woman who, who bravely addresses one of the most powerful women in the land and offers a course of action. Shall I go, she says, and summon a Hebrew woman to nurse the child for you? That was a clever disguise for reuniting Moses with their mother. We don't hear any more about Miriam until after the Israelites have crossed the Red Sea, having escaped Egypt and all that it represents. The passage found in chapter 15 describes how Pharaoh's forces were consumed in the sea while Israel was given safe passage, and it gives us several clues about how this young woman matured. Here's what we read. The prophet Miriam, Aaron's sister, took a tambourine in her hand while all the women went out after her with tambourines dancing. And she responded to them, Sing to the Lord, for he is gloriously triumphant. Horse and chariot he has cast into the sea. Miriam is referred to as a prophet, just as her brother Moses is in Deuteronomy chapter 18. 
In the Bible, a prophet is not one who simply predicts a future, but rather one who speaks for God, one who must act very boldly. Miriam also seems to have some kind of leadership qualities, at least in terms of the charisma it takes to sing and praise God and have all the women follow in her footsteps. So from these characters who populate the scenes of Moses' early life, we have some simple but important lessons. From the midwives, we learn a bit about what it means to follow God, even when it places one in conflict with the state. From Moses' mother, we learn about the sacrificial nature of love. And from Pharaoh's daughter, we learn what it means to have compassion and that redemption can come from very surprising sources. And from Miriam, we catch a glimpse of boldness and creativity that can be a necessary component of living in community. Now, what do we learn about God's identity and character in these first chapters from the book of Exodus? Chapter 2 fast-forwards from Moses' infancy to his maturity and ends with a rather depressing summary of the condition of Israel. It says, A long time passed, during which the king of Egypt died. The Israelites groaned under their bondage and cried out, and from their bondage their cry for help went up to God. Right away we learn three things. First, imperial leadership has been passing hands, which means that their oppressed conditions spanned a long period of time. Second, during that time, nothing has improved for Israel. And third, they still identified themselves as people of the covenant, crying out to their God. And this is the first we hear of any public outcry from those who are the oppressed. And it's not insignificant that they articulate their pain. Many who work with oppressed people even today will tell us that the beginning of liberation and eventual healing is often the ability of the oppressed themselves to articulate their condition and to demand a change. And we have a hint of how this God of Israel is different from other gods when in the next line of scripture says, God heard their moaning and God was mindful of his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God saw the Israelites and God knew. Israel's God was unlike the regional gods who were impervious to people's needs and must be bribed for favors. Their God was unlike Pharaoh who saw himself as a God and was completely unmoved by pain and suffering, even adding to it with great frequency. Israel's God saw and knew, and it didn't take incense to get God's attention. This kind of divine knowing is not related to gathering information as if God wasn't aware of the Israelites already. Instead, it's a kind of intimate sharing in their experience. Furthermore, the God of Israel, the great I Am, is moved to action. Do you remember when we learned about parts of speech when we were in primary school? Well, if you do, then it comes as no surprise that a verb is an action word. Just listen to the way verbs are used in the encounter between God and Moses at the burning bush. God says, I have witnessed the affliction of my people in Egypt, and I have heard their cry against their taskmasters, so I know well what they are suffering. Therefore, I have come down to rescue them from the power of the Egyptians and lead them up from that land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey. So now what are the verbs? To witness, to hear, to know, to come down, to rescue, and to lead. Israel's God is depicted as engaging all the senses, so to speak, so that Israel's suffering is taken in completely. 
coming down, rescuing, and leading are the active ways in which God takes their cry and turns it into an avenue of liberation. We'll learn more about what that means as we continue our study of Exodus. But for now, let's turn our attention to the call of Moses. The call of Moses sets a kind of pattern that is repeated in many other call narratives in the Bible. You can check this out when you consider the call of Samuel, which is found in the first book of Samuel, chapter 3, or the call of Isaiah in the sixth chapter of Isaiah, or the call of Jeremiah in the first chapter of Jeremiah. And here's what that pattern looks like. First, there is an encounter with God, followed by a divine speech of introduction. Then comes the commission, followed by an objection, and finally, there is divine reassurance, followed by a sign. In the case of Moses, the encounter takes place in the wilderness around Mount Horeb as Moses is tending his father-in-law's flock. It says there the angel of the Lord appeared to him as fire flaming out of a bush. When he looked, although the bush was on fire, it was not being consumed. At the very least, Moses was curious and he followed his curiosity into an unexpected encounter. We've already looked at the heart of the introductory speech where God spells out what he has witnessed and intends to do for Israel. But also part of this speech is the exhortation, remove your sandals from your feet for the place where you stand is holy ground. Now that ground was holy because of the encounter. Remember, Moses was doing something quite mundane and had not gone to a holy place in search of God. God came in search of him. And very shortly, we find out the purpose of that divine encounter. The commission is simple and overwhelming. Now go, God says, I am sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. Well, frankly, no wonder Moses objected. Can you imagine, even in the best of circumstances, being told to address the political, military, and religious leader of your country and to come to him with an agenda that you know will not be popular? And then add to that the reality that Moses is a wanted man who at one time was on Pharaoh's hit list for assaulting and killing an Egyptian overlord. No one would blame Moses for feeling squeamish in the face of such a mission. But Moses doesn't just make one objection. He objects at least four times. But, 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 however, twice in chapter 3 and twice more in chapter 4, which you'll cover next week, each time, God offers an assurance and a sign. His first objection is that he's not worthy. Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh? And you know what? He isn't worthy. But being called has nothing to do with being worthy. It has everything to do with being accompanied by God. I will be with you. And the sign of God's presence will be when God's people are able to worship on the holy mountain. Now his next objection, which occurs in chapter 3, verse 13, shows that Moses is beginning to play out the scenes in his mind. He realizes that his own people do not really know him and might not accept his leadership. He lets God know that Israel would question his authority, and they'll want to know not just who sent him, they'll want to know the name of the one who has such authority. Now, of course, ever since this revelation of God's name was recorded, every generation has grappled with what it means. Our translation in the New American Bible Revised Edition says, I am who I am. However confusing that may remain for us, it does tell us that God desires to bond in intimate relationship. Knowing another's name allows for that intimacy and implies that those who know one another's names are available and involved with each other. 
Terence Fretheim, and he has a great insight in his commentary, and it helped me to deepen my appreciation of the significance of God's answer. He says, the force is not simply that God is or that God is present, but that God will be faithfully God for them. And by implication, God will be faithfully God for all generations. So when Moses objects and asks for God's credentials, can you imagine, he gets more than he bargains for. And the sign that God gives to assure Moses is that the Israelites will listen to you, it says, and that the people of Egypt will become so well disposed toward this people that when you go, you will not go empty-handed. Somehow, I think that most of us can relate to what Moses may be feeling and thinking as he begins to wrestle with God's call. I don't know about you, but I haven't actually had God speaking to me from a burning bush. And yet, I have certainly felt God's clear call in a few instances. I too like to imagine that if I can just reason with God, surely someone else could be sent in my place. Surely God will realize that others are much more skilled or flexible or faithful. But God usually sees in us something that we may not see ourselves. And God always equips us for whatever lies ahead. It's just that we have to be willing to unpack that equipment and put it to use. As we end our discussion of these first three chapters of Exodus, I want to leave you with yet some further insight from Terence Fretheim. When discussing how God is revealed to Moses and to Israel, Fretheim says the following, What God reveals is related to what Moses believes he needs to know in order to do what he is called to do. God's revelation is thereby tied directly to the human situation. Both God and Moses recognize that God is not demystified through further understanding. In fact, the more one understands God, the more mysterious God becomes. Fretheim continues, God is the supreme exemplification of the old adage, the more you know, the more you don't know. Now, does that mean we shouldn't bother to study? No. But when we study God's word, we have to be aware that for all the knowledge we gain, we cannot presume to comprehend all that God is and all that God desires. We have to be open to the possibility that part of the way God liberates us is in allowing us to let go of any certainty, but the clear assurance that God will be God for us and that God will be with us on our way.